Back in Philippians chapter 2, if you turn there with me now, as we get into the main part of the message here today, in Philippians chapter 2, one of the favorite verses of all of us, I'm sure, is verse 5, where the Apostle Paul said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, or to have the mind of Christ in every part, in every facet of our lives, and how we approach our family, our mate, our children, our neighbors, our job, how what we eat and when, how much we eat, <laughs> all the aspects of our life, our exercise, every facet of our life should be involved in that. When you think about it, certainly how we treat other people and how we worship God. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. So we must work in our doing our part in having the mind of Christ. He said a little later in verse 12, and I want this to reflect down on everything I'm going to say later. Everything I'm going to say later, because I'm going to give you some specific things to do, but you can't do it on your own. All of us know that, but we need to review that fact. He said, therefore, my beloved, in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not as in my absence or presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out. God inspired Paul, the prophet, to say, don't work, you have nothing to do. Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do you do this? On your own strength? No, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you can't do it on your own, and you should constantly ask God's help in doing it, ask God's guidance in doing it, God's wisdom, God's faith and courage. And yet there are things you should do as your part with that help from Almighty God. A lot of it does depend on what we do, of course, with what we have to do with. And we are to work out our own salvation. And certainly when you think about it, we should absolutely cry out and crave, just have a craving to live forever in the kingdom of God. We're to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. To want that so bad we can taste it. To picture that coming kingdom. To picture that last trumpet. To picture ourselves rising to be with Christ when He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Brethren, we should really want that and go all out for that in every possible way. I'm going to give you some keys on that one major uh, tool today on that in that line. It is a great tool to build uh, your Christian life. And along that line, it has to do with building strong habits. I hope all of you will think about that. We are all creatures of habit. There have been whole books on that. My young man that's helping take care of me, uh, uh, Jonathan Bueno. I just call him Bueno because my son Jonathan's moved home, so I called him Bueno, and he doesn't mind. This is an excellent book on that he had, and I already told him what I was going to preach on, but he had this book I hadn't even seen before, so I haven't read all of it, but I've looked at it. And I got some fine quotations from Mr. Nathan and others as well about the subject. But the main thing is what God says using these principles that men have learned. Build strong habits. That is a powerful tool. It really is. Because as all these books point out, many, many articles I've read over the years, it's nothing new, show you and tell you, as many of you have read, we are all creatures of habit. Some people just have the habit of getting up late. Some people have the habit of going to bed late. Going to bed late usually means they get up late. Some people have the habit of drinking too much coffee. That's just a habit. Some people have the habit of drinking too much liquor. And, of course, that's a very bad habit. Some people have the habit of watching too much television. They're living in a dream world. Millions and hundreds of millions, perhaps, of our young people in the United States and Canada and Britain around the world are all constantly playing with their their little devices. They're playing with their Internet devices and iPhones, and they can't be in touch with reality and what's going around them as much as they should. And many articles and books have come out on that, showing because they're hooked into this little contraption that didn't even exist until about 20 years ago, and people began to get hooked on those things. So that's a very great hindrance to the modern generation. It keeps them really interacting with others the way they should and being aware of what's going on around them. So I hope all of you can learn these things. Many people have all kinds of habits. Some people have the habit of losing their temper real quick. They just let it happen. It gets to be a habit. Some people have a habit of yelling when something goes wrong. Some people have the habit, you know, of wanting to fight. 
Some people have the habit of wanting to run. When a problem comes, they just run away from the problem rather than facing the problem. These things all become habits. I know that I learned some good habits years ago, not nearly as many as I should have, so I'm not bragging, but I was glad because of my father's encouragement and the encouragement of coaches and others to learn the importance of a habit of regular exercise every single day. And some of you say, well, you look pretty old and tired. Well, I am. I'm 84. How many of you are 84 or older? Some of you are, perhaps. How many of you are not a one of you that is raising his hand? So so I, I did all right. I've outlived, I guess, most of you. So if I die someday at 85 or 97 or something, don't be shocked. Say, well, God struck him down at age 85 or, 80 or 97. Some weird people, when Mr. Armstrong died, really two or three, and we had one or two letters come in that I read saying, well, it looked like God struck Mr. Armstrong down. I thought, wow, that's a good way to be struck down, to die in your mother's favorite chair in peace in your own home after 94 years of a magnificent life of traveling all over the world and meeting kings and emperors and accomplishing and building the very work of God. So if you have to go, that's a pretty good way to go. But these habits have helped me to be a leader in my track team and co-captain of the track team and the best high school miler in Missouri one year to be a two-time Golden Gloves boxing champion and at least win my golden football and playing on the football team, although I was one of the two smallest on the teams, I still got to play at least, and so on. And I've had a lot of blessings being in better health than most people and living longer and accomplishing more because of the habit of regular exercise and trying to be reasonably careful with my diet as a matter of habit as well, although I've not been perfect on that. I sometimes like ice cream or certain things that are not perfect for us, but I've had the habit. And those are very things. I got a very good habit of positive thinking. I got a wonderful habit of positive thinking, frankly, from my grandmother Meredith, who was always that way, clear up until she died at age 94, and a habit of positive thinking from my own mother, who was a very positive person as well, and a very positive thinking approach from Mr. Herbert Armstrong, whom I knew so well and spent thousands of hours with for 36 years. A man who had his downs and points, but basically was very positive. We're going to do it. We're going to make it. Were we in the end, as he said many times, we win. And so he was a very positive person. You train yourself to a degree to have some of these things. They don't always often come just automatically. You have to learn to get in a positive thinking attitude. Norman Vincent Peale wrote the book, you know, The Power of Positive Thinking, and showed how many people have worked on that. And it's helped them succeed in life by learning, training yourself, getting the habit, again using that term, building the habit of becoming a positive thinker. Not in the habit of saying, oh, well, I can't make it and let's give up and quit and all that kind of thing. No, don't do that. Build the habit of positive thinking. Again, as all these things I said, I'm not going to mention God doing it all the time. But that's not to be the underlying thing for us because we cannot do all these things on our own. And if we're trying to do it to serve God, He will help us. God will help us build the power of positive thinking. As I've sometimes joked, you know, I read Norman Vincent Peale's book two or three times over the years. Very helpful. But of course, that's about all he knew. He didn't really know God the way we know God. He was a Protestant minister, kind of uh, independent. But nevertheless, he had the power of positive thinking, which many others before him did. But he spelled it out in a very interesting way. But he didn't fully know God. And, of course, some of the other uh, uh, critics and smart others said, well, one uh, leading older minister said, I find the Apostle Paul appealing, but I find Dr. Peel appalling. But anyway, he, he, he didn't know the truth, of course, like this old Baptist minister thought he'd do it, I guess, or whatever. But as it is, it's good to have that. The power of positive thinking will not help you if the bombs start coming down and you're not in a place of safety. You can think positively all you want. You're going to be blasted out of existence. So you better really know God and obey God in all the other ways as well. 
But you do need to have the power of positive thinking. You do need to have the discipline, the habit of regular exercise, being careful with your diet, being careful how you treat others, being careful what you say, guard the door of your mouth, as the Bible tells you. All these things can be habits that are built into your life over a period of time. And it's just terribly important to learn those habits as a way of life to help you be in the kingdom of God. Notice back in Daniel, if you would, turn to the book of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, and I hope this is a very well-known verse to many of you. But in Daniel 6 and verse 10, we find that Daniel was in danger of being executed if he prayed to any other god beside the king. And yet, therefore, uh, when Daniel knew the writing, Daniel 6 verse 10, he knew what was written. He knew his life was in danger. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. And you've heard me explain, if you have that opportunity, brethren, I'm digressing. Try to get to a place where you have a window, not necessarily an open room. Our, our weather may not permit that all the time or where you are. But he, he had a room where he could look out. If you have a window where you can look out and look at God and look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains nearby. I had a wonderful place to pray up at Gatlinburg. The particular side of the hotel that we stayed on, Bueno and I stayed on this hotel up on top of the hill, a gorgeous view. And we happened to be right on the side where the biggest mountains were. And we could literally look out the window and kneel open in front of the window and look up at those mountains. From the hills comes my strength, you know, that old thing. But I could look up and that was a wonderful place to pray. Pete prayed regularly in his upper room with his windows open. He knelt down. How do you pray? Well, you could pray in any position if you need to. But if you can, in your personal private prayer, then kneel down on both knees. He knelt down on his knees, plural, three times that day. Three times every day. He had a habit. He was able to confront these problems and feel a a sense of safety and a deep feeling of faith in God because he was walking with God, talking with God, praying to God three times every day, plus perhaps many times during the day just in quiet prayers himself in his own mind, as all of us, I hope, will learn to do. So he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to God uh, as was his custom. You can substitute the word habit as was his habit since early days. So since the early days of his life, he had prayed on his knees before God three times a day. One of the greatest prophets in all human history. How could he keep close to God? How can you keep close to God? Learn to pray on your knees to the God of creation, the God of heaven, three times a day on your knees. Plus other times between the, as you're just walking around or sitting at your desk and you can look down quietly and pray and do that kind of thing all the time. But build the habit in that way of walking with God, talking with God, communing with God as a habit. And that is so important. You will find then back in... uh, uh, Psalm 55 if you turn back to Psalm 55 and again most of you know this or I hope that you do a very wonderful passage in the Bible and this of course is about the man who is a man after God's own heart why was King David a man after God's heart, own heart there are five or seven key reasons I wrote an article on it years ago we've had many articles but here's one reason Psalm 55 verse 17 or verse 16, let's start out. David is writing this psalm. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Eternal shall save me. Evening, morning, and at noon, three three times a day. And he said, when? Evening, morning, and at noon. Well, it doesn't have to be just exactly those times for you, but it's a good pattern to follow. Evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud. I know my friend Mordecai Joseph had grown up speaking Hebrew and knew biblical Hebrew pretty well too. And he mentions most of the time, he just say all the time, but when it says terms like Jesus cried out or words like that back in the Old Testament as well, it literally means yelled out very loud, very 
heartfeltly, and I just, you know, cried out. So David would cry aloud, and he, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Don't yell around people, but if you're in quiet with God, you don't yell, but you may talk loud and put your heart in your prayer, where you're energized by it. Father, help me if you're in trouble. If you mean it, he will hear and have your heart in your prayer and your whole being in your prayer. Because as I said, you should want with every fiber of your being to be in that kingdom of God. With every fiber of your being, you should want to be there when it's time to lift off, lift off and rise to meet Christ in the air. That should be your goal, the resurrection from the dead. So we all deeply want that, I hope, and can understand that's a very important thing. So building strong habits is a very important thing to be in the kingdom of God. Building strong habits of Bible study. You've heard me explain that. I won't give you a whole sermon on that now, but Bible study. Not just to read this book, to read it and reread it and slowly read it and meditate on it. After you've read, finished reading a chapter two or three or whatever topic, think about what you've read. What did I just read? And maybe pray quickly in your mind, Father, help me remember it. Help me to use it. Help me to help others with it. Have that in your mind and heart as you study. So study the Bible, then meditate on the Bible. And of course, as you know, the other keys to Christian living, then prayer. Pray to God regularly on your knees. And then, of course, fasting. Use the tool of fasting. And frankly, I found in my Christian life that if I got in the habit of fasting, it was much easier if I just sort of let it go, well, maybe I'll fast once or twice more beside the Day of Atonement. Sometimes uh, most of the year would go by and I'd realize, well, ghastly, I haven't fasted during the Day of Atonement. So maybe I'd start in July or August where it was pretty hot. But if you get in the habit of fasting, if you're in good health or younger, about once a month, be sure you have the health to do it. I've slowed up a little bit. I don't fast quite once a month since my stroke. But I do fast several times a year, not just once on atonement. But build a habit Every other month or once a month or whatever, a habit where you're regularly doing it and your body is in a regular habit of eating a little bit lighter, being sure that you have no spicy food to make you too thirsty during your fast. And then after your fast, coming off with a bland food. I know us young guys used to drink, eat a great big uh, steak dinner and drink some beer right after a fast when I was growing up and first in the church. Well, of course, a young man can get away with that. But if you've just got through fasting and you have this great big slug of meat right down there and all your all your blood's gone out of your brain and it's gone down there to digest this big hunk of meat, then the spiritual inspiration you got from the fasting is kind of wiped out, if you follow me. And uh, it's not good to do that. It's better to come off the fast more gradually. Think, well, I've been fasting to God. And then break back into your meals slowly and think, I want to keep that spiritual zest. I want to keep that edge that I have from crying out to God and spending extra time in that fast, praying, studying, meditating, getting closer to God Almighty. So learn the tool, the powerful tool of fasting and build a habit. Again, I found that my body, even once I was fasting once a month, it seemed to be easier. I, I don't know if it was, but it seemed to me that it was because my body was at least used to the idea and I didn't get near as sick or bothered by as I did it regularly as if I only wasted the day of atonement and then fasted and my body and my mind and psychology was not ready for fasting. So building strong habits is a powerful tool, a powerful tool to help you overcome to help you follow through from the feast, to help you overcome, to grow, to be like Christ, to have the mind of Christ. Habits. You're a creature of habit more than you realize. I got some very fine quotes here from uh, these quotes from Mr. Nathan that he was able to get for me. I might read a few of them here to you. And uh, I don't want to read too much, but some of these may be of help to you think about it. Samuel Johnson, most of you know, is a very thoughtful writer and philosopher. He said, the chains of habit are generally too small to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. Sometimes they're bad habits, and it's hard to break those chains. But on the other end, if they're good habits, it's hard to break those chains too. I don't want to brag because I don't do it the way I should. But frankly, when I get up in the morning, 
It never occurs to me that I'm not going to pray or might not pray. I know and know that I know I'm going to wash my face, shave, comb my hair, get some cold water on my face, get awake. But then the first thing I do, I have it on my dressing robe. I'll go by that window and pray. I don't wonder am I going to. There's never anything else to do. Life doesn't begin until that's, that is done. You've got to go to the toilet, wash your face, comb your hair, shave your beard if you're a man, and then you pray. Nothing else should intervene. Don't watch the morning news. Don't flip on the television and get hooked by some other ideas. Get on your knees. Don't let anything else interfere. Get on your knees before your God and begin to pray. Start off the day. And that way, if you build a powerful habit, that habit can really help you. Another uh, very outstanding quote from an outstanding man. Most of you don't know him, but I know him because I read a lot about him. I was a mile runner. Jim Ryan was one of the outstanding mile runners of our generation that set a world's record. One of the most outstanding mile runners in track history. He said, motivation is what gets you started. Habit is what keeps you going. Habit is what keeps you going. You get in the habit of training. If you're going to run the mile, you can't go out and run the mile or run practice track once or twice a week. You've got to do it every day, every day, every day. Keep it up. Run short distances, then longer, and then gradually longer and longer. I used to run in the winter with my dog Poochie through the snow back in Missouri. I wear heavy boots. I thought that would build my... I had some... People tell me writing things I'd written would give you better. Well, some coaches disagree with that. But anyway, I tried that. But I was run out during the snow on the hills north of Joplin in the snow. Had my dog with me. You, you do it regularly. Then you, when the track season comes, you're already ready. You're in the habit of running. Your heart, your lungs, your liver are in the habit of go, 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 and don't quit. Another very famous uh, fellow... Uh, Theodore Dostoevsky, I've read his uh, interesting Russian thinker. He said, the second half of a man's life is made up of nothing but the habits he has acquired during the first half. <laughs> that's a little overdone, but that's often the case. Many people don't change much. They still have the habit of smoking too much or drinking too much or hopefully of praying. You don't pray too much. Studying. If they're a Christian and they keep those habits the rest of their life, that sets the pattern of most people's lives, their habits. Then an outstanding quote from one of the most outstanding women in modern history, Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, the, the female answer to Winston Churchill, a very great prime minister. I got to hear her give part of a speech one time in the parliament. She said, I'm quoting Prime Minister of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher, quote, Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they, listen, they become your character. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. Your character determines what you will be far beyond what even she understood because she was not being called. What we think we become. My father always said that and I think I'm fine. Tremendous thoughts there from Margaret Thatcher. Watch your character because that will become your destiny. And most of all, if you're a Christian, that will mean that if you have Christ in you and the habit of bringing every thought into captivity to Christ, then you will be with Christ. You will share eternity with Christ, and that will be your destiny. Now, some other things here to think about. I want to uh, read Second Corinthians now. Turn, to, if you would, to the New Testament, to Second Corinthians. And we're going to begin reading here in chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter uh, 10, I'm sorry. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3. The Apostle Paul wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Of course, many scriptures tell us that Christians are not to go to war. We do not war according to the flesh. We're not supposed to go out and fight and kill in the New Testament age. But we do have a warfare, nevertheless. For the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not carnal. They're not physical. 
but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What are those strongholds? Casting down arguments and every high thing like this uh, scientist that uh, was being quoted here that tried to put down God and say, we don't want to have that approach. That might, that might imply there's a creator casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's our warfare, bringing every thought Every thought that goes through our mind, try to have a habit of thinking, is this what would Christ think? As you know, I've given you two different sermons on what would Jesus do. Then later I gave a sermon on what would Jesus really do. The kids used to have this WWGC thing, but they didn't know what Jesus would do because they didn't study the Bible to find out what he really did do. What would Jesus really do? And you're to have that attitude and try to seek and think in your mind and study the Bible and meditate on it, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, a habit of thinking that way, a habit of acting that way. And that can be done even as a matter of habit to a certain degree, but again, only with the help of God. Father, help me bring every thought into captivity to Christ. Father, help me to think through this problem in marriage this problem with my children, this problem on my job, this problem with whatever it is, what would Christ do? What would Christ really do? When I'm thinking about a practical problem of just human success or uh, sort of physical type things, sometimes I'll even use the example of Abraham or David, thinking about what the United States do in times of war. Sometimes I'll think of King David, you know, as a carnal nation. They would go in and win the war real quick, not mess around. But when I'm thinking about, of course, what would Christ do, I try to study what Christ did do. And I try to read some things David wrote, too, of course, from a spiritual point of view. And read the New Testament and try to have see in that way, by his own inspired word, what Christ would do. But get the habit of thinking that way, and it becomes a habit after a while. It will help you so much. Back in John 6, again, something I know I've preached, and I want to keep, I'll keep giving you this, so don't ever get tired of it. You're, you're going to keep hearing it from me. So you'll have to find out when I'm preaching and stay aware. You may hear this again sometime. This is one of my favorite scriptures back here in John chapter 6 and verse 53. John 6, verse 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. That sounds like, you know, cannibalism. But of course, Paul didn't mean it that way, or Christ didn't, as, as he explains. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, if you totally drink in of every aspect of Christ spiritually, and feed on Christ, then you have eternal life. You're not spirit yet, but you have Christ in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you, and that spirit is eternal, and that will resurrect you. You have eternal life. Whoever eats my flesh has that, and I will raise him up. So it shows you're not immortal yet, but you have the presence of eternal life in you if you feed on Christ. I will raise him up. When? At the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Boy, that's strong. If I said that, or I'd heard Mr. Armstrong say that, uh, think about himself or something, when I was first in the church, I'd have been all upset. But this was God speaking. God in the flesh. They didn't realize that. Some of them said, what is he talking about later? And, uh, and they said, this is a hard saying, and... Who can, who can understand it and so on. But he's saying, you literally drink in of me and then you'll have eternal life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's the key. If you drink in of Christ through constantly studying this book, not just reading it, please brethren, not just reading over real quick, but slowly reading it thinking about it, meditating on it, digesting it into your mind, your heart, your being, reading this book and praying to God as you read it and asking God for understanding and strength to do it. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. You live, you walk with Christ and Christ in him. 
So Christ lives in us in that way. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So that's the key verse. If you feed on Christ, if you drink this as Jesus Christ in print, Christ is the Word. He's the one that inspired the whole Bible. God inspired the Bible through Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus Christ in print. The New Testament, more important than the Old, but frankly, God doesn't want us to separate them because the New Testament is based upon the Old and simply magnifies the Old. It's all God's Word. He said down in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the power of God's Spirit. The flesh profits nothing. Yeah, you can go out and make more money, and you can exercise too much, and some young men do that. They'll go to these gyms and, and try to get their biceps bigger. And I've, I've been to Burke Goodrich Gym out in, in uh, Hollywood Boulevard and in uh, Hollywood and places like that, and they're seeing how big their base biceps are. They're like, you know, they have all these rippling muscles. That's not the point. You can exercise enough to glorify God in your body. Your point is to glorify God and to have a good life, of course, and be able to protect your family, to work hard, to be in good health, but not to worship it. But you're to feed on Christ. And these words are spirit and they are life. The words in this book, the Bible, give you life. They are life-giving exercise, physical exercise. Physical food is not. So it's important we realize how important this habit is of feeding on Christ. Now, I'd like to read a few of the quotes from this book, and I'd recommend it to you. Uh, I, I, I think, I haven't read it, but about 20 or 30 pages of it, skimmed the rest, but it's called The Power of Habit. So I'm going to get it and read it all. But here are some quotes for those of you who don't wish to read a whole book, and this, the ones that I just were able to screen real quickly can be helpful to you. He says, this is an expert on it, by the way. They all say that in these reviews from some top publishers. When you woke up this morning, what did you do first? Did you hop in the shower, check your mail, or grab a donut from the kitchen counter? Did you brush your teeth before or after you uh, toweled off? Tie the left or the right shoe first. What did you say to your kids on your way out the door? These things become habit, you see. You automatically grab your coffee first or do this or that. People are just like that. What route did you take to work? When you got to your desk, did you uh, deal with email, chat with a colleague, or jump into writing a memo, salad or hamburger for lunch? Question mark. Sometimes you have a habit of getting hamburgers all the time and not a good salad. When you got home, did you put on your sneakers and go for a run? Did you immediately think, I've got to exercise? Well, I used to do that. I didn't go home first. I go straight to the Y. As I've told you before, when I before my stroke every afternoon, and Monica can tell you that, and others in the office, it was not a question, am I going to exercise? It was a question, in a rare case, was I not going to? Otherwise, I was automatically headed for the Siski Y and had my gym clothes in my bag and put them on there, and then I was going to go over there and, you know, do some stretches and warm up, then run for a mile and a half or two miles. As I got older, I'd run one and jog run and off and on, then go down and lift weights. And some of the young men were down there lifting weights, and I was lifting 60 to 80 pounds and presses 10 times or curls or squats. And I was the young men were sometimes lifting 100 pounds more than I was. But I didn't go around telling them how old I was, but some of them began to ask me. And when I found, they found out I was old enough to be their grandfather, they said, wow, you set us an example. So they were impressed. They, saw, they said, you're here every night, aren't you? That's right. So every night is not a question. Of, I might go. It's better to get the habit, a habit, a habit, build the habit. And it was able to help me do more through most of my life because of the habit. All, quote, all our lives before us that has definite form is but a mass of habits, end quote. William James wrote, he was a famous philosopher and writer, for all of you people most have read of him. Most of the choices we make each day, they continue, may feel like the products of well-considered decision-making, but they're not. They're habits, and through each habit means relatively little on its own, though each habit, Over time, the meals we order, what we say to our kids each night, 
whether we save or spend, how often we exercise, the way we organize our thought and organize our work routine have enormous impacts. And they do. These habits have enormous impacts on our health, our productivity, our financial security, and our happiness. The habits that we develop in our lives. I know my parents had a very good habit that I tried to follow and didn't follow perfectly, but every night, unless they were sick or really gone late, and they didn't go out near as often as I did later, because they didn't have the money, it was the Great Depression. I think Catherine would remember, I suppose they did that with you, but almost every night until I was 12 or 15 years old, they'd come in at bedtime and kneel down by my bed and help me say my prayers. <laughs> and that was a good habit, helped, taught me to think about the thought of prayers. Habits, habits. One paper published by Duke University researchers in 2006 found that more than 40%, get this, more than 40% of the actions people perform each day aren't actual decisions but habits. Two out of five things you do are more or less habits. Something you just get in the habit of doing and you keep right on doing. You automatically pray in the morning. You automatically lay down and kneel down and say prayers with your parents or children at night. You automatically eat at home. You automatically, you know, whatever it is. You're a product of habits and it has a big impact on your life. So try to think about that. Build the kind of habits that will get you into eternal life. A little bit later, I, I, I'm a little hesitate reading too much to you, but maybe this will be helpful. It tells you about Michael Phelps. How many of you know who Michael Phelps is? Well, it looks like about half of you. That's good. Michael Phelps was considered one of the greatest swimmers of all time. He won several Olympic championships in swimming. Tremendous Olympic champion and world-class swimmer. Outstanding. What happened with Michael Phelps when Bob Bowman, his coach, you see, started working with Phelps and his mother on the keystone habits of visualization and relaxation? Neither Bowman nor Phelps had any idea what they were doing. Quote, we'd experiment, try different things until we found the stuff that works, Bowman told me. Eventually, we figured out it was best to concentrate on these tiny moments of success and build them into mental triggers. We worked them into a routine. What is a routine? Well, it's a sense it's a habit, you see. You do it regularly. There's a series of things we do before every race that are designed to give Michael a sense of building victory. So I don't want to go through this about five paragraphs here, but it shows how they did these things over and over and got him into the habit of victory. In Beijing, China, in the, in the Chinese Olympics, it was four minutes before the races started and Phelps stood behind the starting block, bouncing slightly on his toes. When the announcer said his name, Phelps stepped forward into the block as he always did before a race and then stepped down, as always he did. He swung his arm three times as he had done before every race since he uh, was 12 years old. He had a certain habit, you see. He'd get ready, he'd swing his arms and loosen up his body. This was his habit. I remember before I ran the mile, I don't know if my sister remember, but I would kick my legs and kind of stretch and do like that. Some of the other guys didn't do that. I did. I just have the habit of limbering up and kicking and jumping around before the mile run started. Phelps did that. Much better athlete than I ever thought of being. But he had these kind of habits he would do. And so it shows how the race began. He knew something was wrong. This was the final race of the Olympics in 19, whenever it was in China. His goggles began to cloud up and they were leaking from top to bottom. He was already in the water. But as he broke this water surface, he began swimming. He hoped the leak wouldn't become too bad. By the second turn, everything was getting blurry as he approached the third turn to the final lap. The cups of his goggles were completely filled. Somehow his goggles had not done that before. They were filled with water. He couldn't see. Phelps couldn't see anything. Not the line along the pool's bottom or the black tee marking the approaching wall. In other words, to turn. He couldn't see how many strokes were left. For most swimmers, losing your sight in the middle of the Olympics final would be catastrophic. Phelps was calm. Everything else that day according to his plan. Why? He had developed with his coach's help all of these mental habits. They had thought through what might happen. They drilled on it, drilled on it till it became habit. I'm spelling some of this out. 
The leaking goggles were a minor deviation, but one for which he was prepared. Bowman had once made Michael swim in a Michigan pool in the total darkness, believing he needed to be ready for any surprise. His own coach had made him do that. He couldn't see anything. Some of the videotapes in Michael's mind uh, featured problems like this. He had mentally rehearsed how he would respond to a goggle failure. As he started his last lap, here all these other swimmers could see where they were going. He couldn't see anything. He estimated how many strokes the final push would require, 19 or 20, maybe 21, and started counting. He felt totally relaxed. See, he wasn't upset. He had drilled it. It was a habit. He knew what he was going to do before he did it. As he swam the final strength, midway through the lap, he began to increase his effort, a final eruption that had become one of his main techniques in overwhelming opponents. At 18 strokes, he started anticipating the wall. He couldn't hear the crowd roaring, or he could hear, but since he was blind, he had no idea if they were cheering for him or someone else. He didn't know. Nineteen strokes. Then twenty. It felt like he needed one more. That's what the videotape in his head said. He made twenty first huge stroke, glided with his arm outstretched and touched the wall. He had timed it perfectly. When he ripped off his goggles and looked up at the scorecard, it said WR, world record. <laughs> so he got a world record he couldn't even see. <laughs> Next to his name, he had won another gold. So he was a great champion, but he had to drill. Habit, habit, habit. If this happens, you do this. Keep going, keep going. Don't give up and quit. These Olympic champions, as you know, get up early in the morning. Some of them who are runners, swimmers, whatever, they'll get up. Many of them, you know, the, the Chinese and the Russians and some others have the government sponsoring them. As if you've read a lot about it, I have. And I've been interested in sports. They'll be sponsored. They'll, they don't even have a regular job. But these Americans normally do have a regular job and they have to get up and go to work. And I've read many articles about it. They'll often get up at 4.30 or 5 and hit the water and take 18 laps or whatever laps and drill and drill. Then they'll come back again after work and do the same thing. For months they drill and drill and drill so they can win. And I used to drill and drill so I could win the mile. And finally it dawned on me after I was converted. I ran and ran. And when I run, when I got to the end, where was I? I was right back where I started. <laughs> I got a little ribbon, most of which are rotted and uh, kind of don't look as good as they did. Some of them we got lost along the way. My mother saved them for me. But where was I? I was right back where I started at the starting line. When we win the reward, when we win the race, where will we be? We will be glorified spirit beings in the family of God. And we will help God explore. Not that he needs to explore, but maybe we will. And maybe even make other civilizations on different planets all through the universe. Of his, of the, of the increase of his kingdom, it says. There will be no end. That's where we will be. Our habits are important. Our goal is so much more important than the goal these human beings have in mind. There's no comparison. And yet look what they'll do. Look what they'll do to win their little ribbon or their uh, uh, little crown, whatever it is. So we need to understand how important that is, the power of the right habits. I want to turn now to uh, Daniel chapter 3, if you would. Daniel chapter 3. And, uh, whoops. Here is something that shows something we're going to have to face, brethren, this type of thing. It's important to have this kind of thought in our mind ahead of time, as Phelps had, that he might not be able to see in case the goggles watered up or something ever happened. Here was a time when God's servants were being threatened with death. So this is Daniel chapter 3 and verse 12. And they had to be sure that they reacted properly, just as Daniel helps had to be sure he could react properly when the emergency came. The people were told to pray to this idol that the king had put up. 
And whoever was not going to pray to that idol, of course, was to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so the people came to uh, the king at a certain point because these three rebellious Jews who worshipped different god, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Jews, and these other people came and reported on them. And they said in verse 12, There are certain Jews among whom you set over the affairs of the province, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you set up. And Nebuchadnezzar became furious with rage and gave a command that they were to be brought before the king. And so he threatened them. And he says, if you don't fall down and worship then when the flute and the symphony and the, all these instruments are played, then you will be cast alive and, and burned in this fiery furnace. And who? The last part of verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Here's the king of the most powerful nation, the most powerful empire on earth at that time. Who's going to deliver you from me? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego undoubtedly have done just what I've been talking to you about because they didn't have any hesitation. They immediately said, apparently... They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to argue about it or talk around about it. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. We don't question that at all from your burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from you, O king. But, verse 18, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not touch or serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have uh, set up. In other words, regardless, we're not going to bow down before your image. We have already decided that ahead of time. Michael Phelps had already decided ahead of time what he would do if he couldn't see. They had decided ahead of time in a powerful manner, we are going to obey the God of heaven no matter what. And brethren, you and I have to decide the same thing. I've tried to tell you, I mentioned the brethren of the feast again at Gatlinburg. All of us, I've seen this in my life, and I think it's going to happen. I can't be positive, but I, I, I am basically positive that in one way or the other, every one of us is going to stand alone at some point. We won't always have our husband or wife with us. We won't always have our family with us. We won't always be able to say, I go, excuse me, I got to go counsel with my minister. We will have to make a decision. We will have to make a decision. Are we going to obey God? Are we going to be thrown in jail or shot or robbed or something? We've got to decide what to do. And often it will be on our own. We may have many trials. But at some point we will stand alone. And we've got to do that before God. And we've got to do like they undoubtedly have done. We've got to plan out, as Michael Phelps did, and our decision is much more involved, I know, much more important by far. What are we going to do if we're persecuted, if we're going to lose our job, if we're going to lose our home, if we're going to lose our mate even? Some of you have had to face that perhaps. I know that Raymond McNair and I and Burke McNair and I on the early baptizing tours, we met many women who were being harassed by their husband and some of them were beaten up and so on because they obeyed God rather than man. And it was a very serious thing. I've told you about the thing when Ted Armstrong and I were in the tour and this guy in Louisiana jumped on us and started to get these chairs and hit us and, and we grabbed the chair each time because we were younger. He was a little bigger, but we were younger and it didn't bother us and we grabbed the chair and it was kind of a, it could have been a comedy show. We danced around and he cussed. He had a wonderful vocabulary and he cussed every way you could think of at us, called us every name in the book and others that I hadn't heard before. And so we finally got down on the lawn away from his porch and he was yelling and cussing. And finally I told Ted, I said, we're not going to be able to, you know, baptize him unless we beat him up in hog time. Or I forget what I said and Ted understood. So we, I, I, it was Ted's turn to drive. So I said, you get the car ready. I didn't need to say more than that. Ted had seen lots of Hollywood movies about the getaway car and I did. So he got to the car, got the car all turned around, ready to go. And then he handed me the other guys before that other hand. And so I had both his hands behind my back. And he was jumping and cursing and kicking at me. So I waited till Ted had the car backed around and ready to go. And then I 
ran toward the car and he did exactly what we thought he would do. He grabbed a rock and threw it, but he didn't hit me and he just bounced off the chrome piece on the car so it didn't hurt too much. But I yelled at his wife two or three times, call Big Sandy, call Big Sandy and get Ken Swisher to baptize you. He yelled it real loud. We found out later she did. But she had to be willing. She may have been beaten up by her husband. Loyally, he acted. I suppose he did. I don't know. We had many women like that. I better not go through the stories. But they had to obey God rather than man. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. But they had to decide to obey God and put their trust in God. So you have to decide ahead of time. Some of you men, are you going to lose your job? Are you going to obey God to go to the feast? Some of you may have lost a job keeping the feast. Many of you did in earlier years, perhaps. But you have to decide, I will obey God and I will trust God to get me through this. Later on, they're going to come looking for us because we are very politically incorrect in this church. You know that. We talk against same-sex marriage. We talk against homosexuality. We talk against all kinds of things the world thinks are just fine. So they will come looking for us eventually. You will have to decide, are you going to obey God or are you going to poop out? They all used to talk about the Volkswagen pooping out on the way to Paducah, you know, are you going to give up and quit? You have to decide. Trust God, but think it through ahead of time. Build the habit of trusting God. Think through what you're going to do and build faith in small stages. Test God here, test God there, and build a habit of faith and build a habit of going to trust God no matter what, which is what these men must have done. So we all need to understand that principle. It's very, very important. After they had given the king that answer, they were in fast thrown into the fire. And they no doubt thought it was too late. I would have thought that. You feel your body being picked up and you feel your body going through the air. And apparently it was a, fi- a pit, a fire in a pit, you know, the way it's described. So they were thrown down in the pit and they could feel themselves going down there into a burning fire that was so he had it heated seven times hotter and so it killed the men that were standing near throwing the man it was so hot and they went right down there and so then the king wondered what's going on and he rose in haste and said to his counselors verse 24 did we not see uh, cast three men bound into the midst of the fire and they answered true O king verse 25 look he answered I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Christ was there, and it could have been an angel, but it probably was Christ himself right there in that fire with them, protecting them from fire. Not a thing was burned. Their clothes weren't burned. Their hair wasn't singed. Nothing. The king of the greatest empire on earth was astonished. And so he then made a decree that any people who would say anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be cut in pieces and his house made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. It converted him from his atheism (laughs) real quick. He learned there was a real God. But brethren, it took faith. These men, no doubt, had to think through ahead of time, what are we going to do? Not one of them wavered according to the story in the Bible. So we have to plan. We have to build a habit of faith in God, a habit of walking with God no matter what. If your child is sick, you've got to think, what should you do ahead of time? It's certainly not wrong to call a doctor if it requires that. If my child broke an arm, I'd call a doctor. And I might call the doctor first and then call uh, the minister, but before I got into a hospital or an operation, I would also got get God involved. This one ancient king, remember, was punished because he did he sought the physicians and not to God. You want to get God involved, and you want to think through carefully. How can you honor God the most in that particular situation and think it through ahead of time so you don't get into panic? Don't leave God out ever. The habit and all the activities of your life. Get God involved. Are you going to move to another city? I've counseled people over many years about such things. Moving from Pasadena or my church in Los Angeles. Well, you're going to move up to somewhere in Montana or Wyoming or some little place. Well, why are you going up there? Well, we just think it would be better to be out in nature. Okay, you're going to be out in nature. Where are you going to go to church? Well... You know, there wasn't any church there, maybe 200 miles. 
Well, how important is it to serve God? Wouldn't it be better if you're going to move somewhere to move up somewhere at least where you're going to be able to get to a church and worship God? The kingdom of God comes first. Think it through ahead of time. Get counsel from the minister ahead of time if there's something about getting married or moving or changing jobs or some big decision. And multitude of counsel. Get advice from two or three or five people. And multitude of counsel. There is safety. Learn to do that. And then trust God to take care of the outcome. But build a habit of always involving God. A habit of always involving God in every decision of that sort. And then when the trial comes sometimes really quickly and you're not ready for it, you will have already been in the habit of going to God and going to the ministry. So that's a very important habit. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians now, chapter 6 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul is writing these Corinthians that were very weak and in the member Corinth was the second largest city of, of idolatry in, in the worship of Diana of the Ephesians. They had hundreds of temple prostitutes, very wicked place. He said, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee fornication, it says in the King James, or flee sexual immorality. Don't just mess around. Don't go out with this cheap woman. Don't go into this uh, uh, cheap restaurant where this bar girl is there and starts sitting next to you and feeding on you and all that kind of thing. I remember I had that happen two or three times when I was a very young man. And you think you're sitting down in a normal place and suddenly this young woman is coming around rubbing on you and you just have to realize I'm in the wrong place. I was still pretty young, young at that time. Flee. Don't just stay around it. Get out. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits fornication sins against his own body. In other words, you're using your own body in a very terrible manner where you could get venereal disease, you could get all kinds of problems. It's a damnable thing. Do you, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't belong to yourself. Your body belongs to God. For you were bought with a price. Christ bought and paid for you. He owns your body, you young men and you young women. Keep that body clean and pure. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Your attitude, your spirit, God's spirit, with your spirit, which are God's, they belong to God. Flee. So often in the Hollywood movies and the TV shows constantly, I haven't watched many of them for years because I'm older now and just don't do it, but so many in the years in the past, they'll just have a, even part of a TV show I'll see. And there'll be a young couple going in the girl's apartment or the boy's apartment. No one else is there. And then the camera fades out. You just assume that they're staying there together, which they probably are. Don't put yourself in that kind of situation with someone of the opposite sex that you're not married to. I don't care how many times they show it on TV. Doesn't make any difference. Those people out there, these Hollywood queers and these other people who are terrible in their character. They have a Hollywood marriage go round, they call it. I know I got to know one of the minor Hollywood stars pretty well at Ambassador College. I shouldn't name him perhaps. Some of you know who I mean. And he told me a whole lot about it. How a lot of these Hollywood people just live with one and live with another and all kinds of things. And some miss, I guess was Miss Elizabeth Taylor. I used to think she was so pretty and I got to see her in person one time. And Mr. Armstrong took us to the Pan Pacific Auditorium and she came right about three or four feet from me and she was beautiful. Miss Elizabeth Taylor is coming to town. Miss, she had eight, counted, eight husbands. Eight husbands. Miss Elizabeth Taylor. They don't understand God. They have all these movies about God, but they don't know God. They have all these movies about love. They don't know what love is. They have no idea. And you young people here and anyone that sees this elsewhere, if we photograph it, I guess, Hollywood does not know what love is. They don't get it. They have terrible lives. And this young movie star told me how many of them were, he said, played uh, sleeping pill roulette. They would take these strong sleeping pills that could kill you. If you take too many, they take whole handfuls and take more handfuls. 
They didn't care if they woke up the next morning, that was okay. If they died through the night, that was okay too. They just didn't care. They were miserable because they were misusing their bodies, misusing the emotions that God gave us to really love one person and build a family, destroying what God had intended. The same thing with the homosexuals. One of the highest rates of suicide of any particular group on earth is the homosexuals. They're miserable. They're not gay. Nothing gay about them. They're miserable. They kill themselves more than almost any other group. So anyway, try to think through and run. I hesitate, but you won't mind me telling the story again about Dr. Herman Hay. He was my first roommate in Ambassador College. And he went down to, uh, we went down to Tijuana and then down to uh, the city right past Tijuana. Now, I'm getting too old. I can't remember which one it is. Ensenada, no, not Ensenada. No, uh, anyway, he went on the, the one down past Tijuana in Mexico and we were down there in a reasonably nice hotel. It wasn't a bad place, but we all got up the next morning. We saw kind of a nice uh, show there in the hotel, and it was just Mexican cultural or folklore type dancing. And But when the girls whirled around and their dresses, why Herman turned his back and looked at the wall, <laughs> he was very careful, more than he needed to be. But the next morning, we were eating breakfast. Herman was a group, grew up on the farm, so he always got up real early. The next morning... Uh, Dick Armstrong and Raymond Cole and I yeah, we were the others that went down there together and, and here comes Herman late to breakfast and he's, he's perspiring and, and, and kind of panting as he'd been running we said Herman where have you been he said well I took a walk around the neighborhood I just got up early and he said I was a, I approached by a prostitute and, and, and she wanted she wanted to take me into her room or what he said you know and he said, I said, I was scared. He said, I obeyed what God says, flee fornication. So Herman literally fled. He ran and he ran all the way to the hotel. Well, I thought that was amusing because that was my first year in college. I was still kind of carnal. But on the other hand, it was better doing that than the other way. He fled. He got out of there. And God tells us to do that. Don't mess around with it. Get out of there. And have it planned ahead of time if something like that is going to happen. Get out of there if someone tries to seduce you sexually or get you to try drugs or get you to do this or that. Plan ahead of time. Build the habit of what I'm going to do and be sure you do it. So then that can help you to flee evil and put away bad habits. When you get the urge to drink too much or you get the urge to smoke a cigarette, learn to flee it. Flee smoking Flee drug addiction, flee fornication, flee all these things. Get out, put it out of your life. Build the right habit of resisting powerfully, resisting powerfully and don't mess with it. Now let's turn back where we started, just like I did in the mile run. You, you end up right where you started. Turn back, if you would, to, to uh, Philippians here, chapter 3. Here's an inspiring passage, one of my favorites, from the Apostle Paul. He says, I want by any means that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Ephesians, I mean, Philippians chapter 3 and verse uh, 11. He said, I want by any means to attain to the resurrection. That's our goal, to be in God's kingdom, to be in his family forever. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. You don't drift into God's kingdom. You try to pray and study and fast, develop character. You try to build a strong series, a way of life, and a whole series, a series of habits. The habits by themselves won't get you into God's kingdom. Don't get me wrong. But Christ can forgive your past sins, and God will give you the Holy Spirit. And through that Spirit, if you yield to God, it says, it is God in you. As we read earlier, it is God in you both to will and to do His will. So it's God that's going to help you do it, to press toward this goal. So he says, not that I'm already attained or already perfected, but I press on. I drive myself that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't think I've already made it, Paul said. But one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind. You've made some mistakes. Ask God to forgive you. Cry out to God to forgive you. Forgive me, Father. Help me. 
cover my sins with Christ's blood. Clean me up and scrub me out, but give me the strength to go forward, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are before, uh, ahead. He said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press. You don't drift into God's kingdom. You go all out with your being because you want above everything on earth not to get a ribbon for winning a mile or some kind of a little uh, uh, trinket for being an Olympic champion. You want eternal life. You want a spirit body that shines like the sun. You want to be a member of the God family. You drive yourself. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's do that. And as part of that process, think about it. Pray about it. Please try to act on it, brethren. Build strong habits.